Welcome to the 2016 edition of War of the Worlds Week, part of the NewsAz.com celebration of Halloween. I am Matt, and in this special, I am going to talk a lot about War of the Worlds, specifically the audio drama of this story. There's movies, games, comics, and TV series, and more than one actually, about or inspired by H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, but in this special, I'm focusing solely on the audio dramas. But first, before we start that, let me explain why there's a War of the Worlds week at all at News As. I mentioned it a bit in our Halloween kickoff episode weeks ago. After growing out of trick-or-treating and before Halloween Horror Nights existed, my Halloween thing was to listen to War of the Worlds. I'm a huge fan of audio dramas, as a lot of the work I do on News As probably shows, and it all honestly started with War of the Worlds. Now, if you've been a longtime listener to News As, especially the Halloween specials and the themed episodes we've done, you might be wondering why I haven't talked much about this before. Well, that explanation has a little bit of a story. Long before podcasting, I was already writing audio drama scripts, some fan fiction, think Star Wars, as you can probably guess, some original and a lot of parodies. Some we recorded in short form, others never saw the light of day. But there was one script that I started that I never finished, and that had bugged me for years, and that was a parody of War of the Worlds. It was basically a scene-for-scene comedy remake of the original 1938 Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air production, or at least would have been if I had finished it. Not too long after shelving that project, real life started. I started my career, met my wonderful wife, and priorities changed. But being in the age that we live in, it wasn't too long after real life started to level out that audio and audio production came back into my life, and in a way that I don't think anyone will argue, in a much better way. At this point, audio distribution via the internet was around even before iTunes or even the name podcast was coined, but credit where credit is due, iTunes shone a huge spotlight on that. And with that, news as as we pretty much know it today started and audio production became a big part of my life again. Once I started to scratch at the learning curve of digital audio editing and I started to see more possibilities for the future, a lot of new ideas started to roll around in my head. Oddly enough, at this part of the story, though, picking where the world's back up, at least the version I shelved all those years ago, didn't immediately come to mind. For anyone that doesn't know, News has started its very first podcast in 2008 with the D13 show. We'd done that show for about a year and then moved on to other shows like Cutting Room Floor, Trailer Pod Boys, and The Gradies. It wasn't until well in the run of one of our biggest series, Stars and Character, that any inkling of revisiting the War of the Worlds idea started. It was late August 2011. It was right after we had done our first live webcast for episode 25 of Star Wars and Character. It was rough. It had a couple ups and downs, but considering it was four guys that had no idea what they were doing, it actually came off pretty good, I think. Moreover, I learned a lot about streaming video. And that's when the idea of doing something with War of the Worlds popped into my head. The first idea I had was to do a live stream of events as they unfolded. At the time, I was dabbling in indie slash amateur filmmaking, and I, what I had thought was that this idea might be a pretty cool way to tell the story if we could pull it off. It would have been an incredible amount of work, well more than any other project anyone has ever done at News As. Ultimately, that's what kept this idea from coming to life. Everything we do at News As is still a hobby, and this project was kind of creating a second job for everyone that was going to be involved, and it started drawing up a budget of money that I didn't have. But that idea was back, and it really wouldn't leave. Over the next few years, I revisited the idea in different forms, parodies, original takes, and even a sequel at one point. Really nothing came to any full realization until this year. This year, 2016, was going to be the year that I finally produced the News As version of War of the Worlds. So you might be wondering, where is it? Or is it even happening this year? We were so close to producing it this year. There's only two things that stopped us. And when you really look at it, maybe just one. First was the script. I wrote four drafts of the script before getting it to what I thought would be the final and fifth draft. Now, here's a little bit of behind the scenes info here that I don't think we've ever shared on any of our other shows. Every time I finish something scripted that we do for news as I read it myself into a recorder to make sure it's flowing and unfolding right. 
I even do different voices of the characters. I, I don't try to imitate my co-hosts. I just do different voices to identify each character as it goes. I read through this, what was final draft of the War of the Worlds script. I, it was mostly what I wanted to hear, but there was just something in there that didn't flow right. And there was something in there I could still fix. That was problem number one, which actually runs into problem number two, time. The date that we absolutely positively had to have the primary tracks recorded was quickly approaching. With the way we're going to record this and then all the effects we have to add, if we didn't get the primary tracks done by that specific date, the project was not going to get done this year, at least not done for Halloween, which was the objective. So I was writing and writing and writing, and the date grew closer and closer and closer. The closer that date came, the higher the pressure that I admittedly just put on myself and the worse my writing had gotten. So finally, at one point, the scales were tipped way too far to the side of not having enough time, and I just postponed the project until 2017. The part of the script that needed to be fixed just still was not getting fixed and wouldn't get fixed in time. And for me, this might be a case that the script is good enough, but that wasn't good enough. And I'm going to explain why, and that statement will make a lot more sense as we go through this episode. So the further question might be, why have this War of the Worlds week without the original grand finale, which would have been the news as production of War of the Worlds? Well, in this one instance, not having that original finale for this War of the Worlds week might work in our favor, namely because there were so many things I wanted to talk about that I ended up cutting for this War of the Worlds week. I now have the opportunity to add them to a second week in 2017 and have that grand finale we planned in the first place. So on one hand, while I don't have the finale I wanted for this year, I will, at least I hope, have it for next year, and now I'll be able to cover all the things I wanted to over these two events. So why do I care so much, and why am I working so hard to make this script as perfect as I think it can be, when it's just a 60 to 90 minute audio drama that most people will likely only ever hear once? That all has to do with how much I really love this story and how incredibly rich and colorful a history it has. Let's start with a story. I'm sure it's not a secret that I'm talking about and will be talking about the story that was originally written by H.G. Wells called The War of the Worlds. The original publication of War of the Worlds was actually a serialized story that appeared over several issues of Pearson's Magazine and Cosmopolitan Magazine in the United Kingdom in 1897. Within the next year, these serials were compiled into one story. It was called The War of the Worlds and released in hardback book and published in 1898. The story tells of an observatory in a village of Outershaw observing explosions on the surface of Mars. Later, what is thought to be a meteor lands on Horsell Common near the story narrator's home. The narrator joins a small group at the crash site to discover that it is an artificial cylindrical object. The door to the cylinder opens and a grayish, oily, brown-skinned creature with large eyes and a V-shaped mouth appears with tentacles surrounding it waving. The astronomer from the observatory, named Ogilvy, joins a small group that approaches the cylinder with a white flag. The Martians incinerate them with a heat ray. The Martians retreat into their cylinder as the military arrives. The military attacks, but to no avail. And from the cylinder rises a three-legged war machine. These war machines scale the countryside, releasing a black poisonous smoke as they move into strategic positions. There's a small victory for Earth as the torpedo ram HMS Thunderclip inflicts damage on two of the tripods before being destroyed. This proves to be a last stand as the tripods move across the landscape unopposed. Book two of this story features a narrator and a clergyman having survived this initial onslaught rummaging through an abandoned house for food. While in the house, another Martian cylinder arrives and a concussion from the landing impact brings the battered house down on the two. The clergyman is the first to break, becoming incoherent and unreasonable. The narrator is forced to knock him unconscious as the Martians approach. But it's too late. The Martians track down the clergyman and begin a fatal transfusion of the clergyman's blood, nourishing themselves. As the narrator escapes, he sees a strange Martian red weed growing everywhere in sight. While on the run, and after having a brief encounter with an artilleryman ready to rebuild society, the narrator learns that the Martians are being killed out by microbial infections, or in other words, the common cold. The narrator suffers a brief but complete nervous breakdown. He's nursed back to health by a nearby family that eventually returns him home. To his astonishment, his beloved wife has miraculously survived as well. 
the book and the serial ends with the narrator reflecting on events in his own mind. And he's left with this permanent feeling and sense of doubt and insecurity. So that is a story for anyone that didn't already know it. As you'll see as we go on, while the premise is still the same, namely the Martian invasion, a lot of artistic licensing will be applied in future versions. And that all starts with the War of the Worlds done by the Mercury Theater on the Air starring Orson Welles. This was the 17th episode of the fledgling CBS series Mercury Theater on the Air, and it was their Halloween episode. The episode aired at 8 p.m. Eastern, Sunday, October 30th, 1938. This unique adaptation was written by Howard E. Koch, one of the contributors to the script of the famous film Casablanca. This version of the story unfolds over a series of news interruptions during what started out as an innocuous music performance presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. We also learn the location and setting for this version. Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Now, more on that in a bit. Soon, we're introduced to Orson Welles' second character other than himself, astronomer Professor Richard Pearson. Pearson would end up being the main character in this version, combining both the original Ogilvy and narrator characters from the original text. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disc swimming in the blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disc. Quite distinct now because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion... What do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Huh. Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Safe. Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then, you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I should say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet... How do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. The story largely plays out like the original version, with Pearson visiting the site, discovering the cylinder, and ultimately incinerated by the Martian heat ray. Or at least that's what we're led to believe. Now, the military retaliation of the Martian tripod machine assault was done in a very unique and pretty captivating manner. As far as the listening audience is led to believe, the CBS broadcast cuts to field assaults for a direct report. As these assaults fail, they cut to the transmission on an airplane bomber approach. Army bombing plane B-843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Bolt commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is Bolt reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from Army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. As in the original story, all is seemingly lost. Putting a modern aspect to the story, the newscaster takes to the roof of the CBS building to give a final report. The black smoke does overcome him, and all we're left hearing is a radio signal call. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's, it's 50 feet. Uh, 
calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ, New York. Isn't there anyone on the air? The story does continue after a break, and we do hear an adaptation of Book 2 from the original text. We immediately learn that Professor Pearson survived the attack at Grivers Mill and is attempting to go on. Again, like most of the Book 1 adaptation, the adaptation of Book 2 is pretty accurate to the original story. At the conclusion of the entire dramatization, Orson Welles returns to himself, revealing that the following events in this broadcast were all part of their Halloween episode. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Now, the reputation of this episode might be as well or possibly better known than the broadcast itself. For a long time, it was widely believed that this single broadcast caused mass hysteria and panic. People tuning in after the original introduction of this being an adaptation thought this was real. Or did they? Well, yes, but in a large way, no. That is a question for another show, and we're going to get into that in a lot more detail later this week on I Have Questions. I wanted to concentrate more on the story and the history of the production of War of the Worlds throughout the years in this special. So you'll have to tune in to I Have Questions to get the full story behind this supposed hysteria. The production and lead up to production has some good story moments of its own, starting with the location of Grover Mills. This version of War of the Worlds took place in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, as I said before. On the surface, that seems like almost a strategic decision. A small, quiet town, one you might have heard of. It's on a map so you could look it up. This could happen. It seems like a well-thought-out choice. Well, the truth is the complete opposite. Here's a clip of Howard Koch to explain in his own words. And I realized I needed a map because I had to lay out a campaign between mm -hmm. us and the Martians the way Orson wanted. Sure. And I had been up to the uh, country, see my father, Kingston, New York, and coming down, I went through a portion of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I stopped at a gas station, and they gave me New Jersey map. So when I came back to my apartment, I spread out the map on the table, <laughs> closed my eyes, <laughs> put the pencil down. And that's where the Martians at, landed. That was Grover's Mill. Turns out the picking of the location of this version of the story was the least of Koch's issues putting this script together. By all accounts, Koch seemed to be the first member of the Mercury Theater to actually fully read the original H.G. Wells story. And when he did, he hated it immediately. Koch found the story to be dull, uninteresting, and completely outdated because even in 1938, the idea of intelligent life on Mars actually existing had pretty much been debunked. On October 25th, just five days before the performance and airing, Koch contacted John Hausman, producer and writer and Orson Welles' partner for the Mercury Theater. Koch told Hausman that the story just was not going to work. Hausman assured him that he would discuss this with Welles and they'd try to find another story to adapt. Now, Orson Welles at the time was possibly the busiest man in entertainment. He had done multiple radio shows, stage productions, de-warped multiple hats as an actor, director, producer, writer. Accounts of the amount of work Welles was doing at this time period is pretty staggering. In this case, Welles was spending his days desperately trying to bring his stage production of Danton's Death to Life after weeks of miserable failures. So Hausman never did contact Welles that day, but he did have something to report back to Koch. That report 
a bold-faced but believable lie that Wells was determined to do the H.G. Wells story that week. Though Hausman didn't actually talk to Wells, having read a lot about Wells' reputation in this area, it seems pretty likely that this was a pretty accurate guess on Hausman's part on how Wells would have answered had he talked to him. By the end of that day, again, this is Wednesday the 25th, Koch had completed his first draft. The next day, now four days before airing, Paul Stewart, Mercury Theater and co-director, and a handful of Mercury Theater performers rehearsed this first draft. And it was awful. Even taking into consideration the lack of music and sound effects, the story alone just was not working. In this version, the format was largely the same. The Martian invasion was told over a series of news breaks, and the survivor's tale was told through a first-person account. There were two big differences in this draft from what was finally performed. One was that the Martian invasion was laid out over a span of several days. Later news reports in the story would make references like last night's attacks or the crash reported just days ago. The other was the invasion and the survivor story were split into two equal acts, making the invasion act much more rushed than the final version. After this terrible rehearsal, Houseman and Stewart took a good, hard look at the script and presented Koch with some notes and other ideas for a rewrite. Along with the story changes, the actors themselves that would be performing in this final version lent their talent and experience in helping the story rewrite, mainly from the dialogue perspective, adding some ideas to make the dialogue more natural and making the moments a more convincing experience to the listener. One of those actors was actor Frank Redick, and he would be playing the reporter in the final version. After having gone through the draft rehearsal, Redick dug up the recording of the Herbert Morrison report of the Hindenburg disaster and ended up basing his performance of the reporting of the Martian arrival based after Morrison's actual real-life report. Now, midday October 30th, only hours before airtime, Wells finally arrived at the studio and took his very first look at the material. Reports say that Wells immediately lost his temper at the whole production. But then again, these reports seem pretty common for the young Orson Welles on nearly every production, so I don't know that this is really a War of the Worlds-specific thing to have happened. The production on its own is mind-boggling to me to this day. Everything you hear takes place in the same studio. The music, the news reports, the field reporters, even the air bombers. I could take some time here to explain more about this, but there's a fantastic 1975 TV movie titled The Night That Panicked America. That reproduced a very large part of what happened in the studio, and for that alone is worth taking the time to watch. There's a couple of versions uploaded to YouTube as I record this, and I highly recommend you check that out if you're interested in learning more about how they produce this. It's actually one of my favorite 1938 War of the Worlds-inspired productions. This 1938 version of War of the Worlds is what started my obsession, but oddly enough, not from hearing it. My first exposure to this was in grade school of all places and in the form of a script that was in the class textbook. It was an example used for the script writing form. We really didn't spend much time on this lesson, if at all, but it was mentioned in the class at one point. When we did take that time to glance at it during class, this is when I first heard about the mass panic legend. I think our teacher actually talked more about that than the lesson in the book. Either way, I ended up reading the script on my own, albeit a truncated grade school version of the script. And tying in what I read with the legend that I had just learned about, I began to instantly be hooked on the idea of audio dramas way back then. But even having read the script, knowing the story, and having this early obsession with the 1938 War of the Worlds, it's actually not going to be until quite a few remakes later that I finally hear a version of War of the Worlds. But let's talk about what leads up to that first. Just six years later, a new radio dramatization of the War of the Worlds was produced in Santiago, Chile. Interestingly, this version was written by the American radio play scriptwriter William Steele. Steele had also been a writer for The Shadow, a radio series in which Orson Welles performed the title character. Now, The Shadow had run for many years and quite a few actors had played the role, but the coincidence in this story is a pretty fun fact. The show aired at 9.30 p.m. on November 12, 1944, almost two weeks past Halloween, so presumably this wasn't a Halloween special or any kind of trick. The producers just wanted to scare the hell out of some people, I guess. The story did take the same idea of localizing the invasion to the broadcast area. The initial report was cited as landing just 15 miles outside of Santiago. 
The same format of interrupting the regularly scheduled content with news flashes was instituted as well. To hammer home the idea of it being a local attack, the script referred to specific locations and organizations to the area, and actors performed voice imitations of the local government officials. Again, like the 1938 broadcast, legends of a mass panic and hysteria are shared, but no real evidence that the entire city of Santiago went berserk can be found. But this performance did inspire another broadcast of War of the Worlds just over four years later, on February 12, 1949. Now, while I've talked about how reports of panic and hysteria and that being more of the stuff of legends than reality, this particular broadcast did incite a serious and devastating incident. The broadcast took place in Quito, the capital of Ecuador. Dramatic director Leonardo Paez was assigned the task of bringing a new drama to the airwaves. This new drama was a script brought to the station by staff member Eduardo Alcarez. Alcarez had presented a copy of the 1944 Chilean version of War of the Worlds. Paez reworked the script much like the Chilean version did with the Mercury Theater idea and made the events localized and featured public figures from Ecuador. One thing Paez did do differently than the last two broadcasts we discussed, Paez planted stories in the local newspapers about UFO landings the days leading up to the broadcast. When time the air came, there was no warning about the dramatization that was about to unfold only that the listening audience would be enjoying a performance by the popular duo Luis Alberto Patola Valencia and Gonzalo Benitez. Paez also added something new to this story. As the music performance was playing, Paez had his sound engineer play some unidentifiable interrupting static to disrupt the broadcast in the early minutes. Paez took to the air and apologized for this unexpected technical difficulty. Much like we discussed in the previous versions of the story, the regularly scheduled performance was interrupted by some news reports of the Martian invasion starting 20 miles outside of Quito and quickly advancing on the city. Now, in this case, there are documented reports of large amounts of people being fooled and perhaps what you would call panicked from this broadcast. Some people did believe there was an alien invasion. And some people believe that Peru was invading. And that's because at the time, Peru and Ecuador had been in a border dispute and relations were volatile, to say the least. People did actually take to the streets, including military personnel. Military was headed south to the invasion approach points. Citizens were looking for safety or for a church for last absolvement. Regardless of who was scared of what, this news of panic had reached the radio station. The staff immediately took to the air and pleaded with the listening audience to calm down and explain that it was all a play. Up until this point, while there was some panic, no one was hurt. But that was about to change. Word started reading the panic listeners, listeners that were now wound up and looking for something to vent their stress on. A mob of hundreds, and that is a confirmed hundreds, of angry listeners headed directly to El Comercio, the newspaper building that housed the station broadcasting this version of the War of the Worlds. When they reached the building, they grabbed bundles of the El Comercio newspaper, lit it on fire, and threw them at the building. Fire quickly broke out, and the front of the building was blocked. Some of the 100 staff members fled the building through the rear exit, but many were trapped on the upper floors. Some jumped. Others tried to create a human chain to lower themselves to the ground. Actor Louis Beltran was the last to leave the building, helping others escape the fire. When he was alone, he took to the airwaves again, calling for help from the fire department, police, or anyone that could help. At this point, it was too late. Beltron jumped from the fourth floor down to the second floor balcony that was engulfed in flames. He grabbed onto the rail and burnt the flesh from his hands. He screamed to the mob below to catch him when he let go, but the mob let him fall directly to the concrete. Miraculously, Louis Beltron survived the fall, and one member of this mob regained their humanity long enough to help Beltron to an ambulance. The fire raged and the building burnt to the ground. In all, a reported six people died in this fire. Leonardo Paez, the producer of this version, survived the fire by escaping through the roof. After hiding for a few months, he appeared in court over the matter. Having all the contracts and documentation in order, Paez successfully proved that the station knew full well of the sequence of events leading to and including the airing of the broadcast he was hired to produce. And with that documentation and argument, he was exonerated in a court of law. Six years later, Paez moved to Venezuela, where he continued to work in radio for several decades until finally passing away in 1991. Moving ahead to 1950, the BBC created a full-cast audio dramatization of H.G. Wells' story. 
This time, the story would be as close as an adaptation to the original text as possible while staying in an audio narrative form. The story was broken into six half-hour episodes, giving it a full three-hour runtime in this version of the story. Unfortunately, like many recordings from the BBC at the time, those original recordings are lost. While those recordings are gone, a second six-part adaptation was done by the BBC in 1967. The language was updated and the scenes changed a bit to add a more modern flair for the time, but this adaptation was a pretty faithful reproduction of that 1950 broadcast. And this time, the recording survived. I did once own a CD copy of this, but it seems to have been lost in one of my many moves since owning it, unfortunately. I do remember listening to it and it not being one of my favorite versions, probably because of the long format and being so closely adapted to the book. But yet again, this is not the first version I heard. Believe it or not, we're still building up to that. Now we're into the version that very possibly is the version that inspired me to do a War of the Worlds that news as more than any of the others that I'm talking about in this special. This version took place in 1968 in Buffalo, New York. It was broadcast on October 30th, 30 years to the day of the original Mercury Theater broadcast. It was produced and aired from WKBW 1520AM, and it all started with an innocent news update. In other news developments, Buffalo police arrested six juveniles this evening following a robbery attempt at Honig Jewelers, 1061 Broadway. The Buffalo Civil Rights Organization build has called for the decentralization of Queen City Public Schools. And finally, this story from the Mount Palomar Observatory in California. For the past two nights, astronomers have been closely watching a series of huge explosions that have been taking place on the surface of the planet Mars. The observatory's director, Dr. Benjamin Spencer, says that although they appear to have as much energy as hydrogen bomb blasts, they are undoubtedly of natural origin. Dr. Spencer described the explosions as looking like, quote, tremendous jets of blue flame shooting out into space, end of quote. He said that although scientists are concerned over the large amounts of gas and foreign materials that the explosions are sending into space, they are not likely to have any effect on the Earth. Mars is currently over 40 million miles away. The WKBW weather word following this. The show continued as WKBW DJ Sandy Beach did a phenomenal job improving his usual overnight music show. Here, KB Total News on the hour and half hour, 24 hours a day. Welcome back to music on the Sandy Beach Radio Show on Halloween night. It's 11.05. Did you hear that story on Joe Downey's newscast about the explosions on Mars? It said they look like giant blue flames. And I was just thinking, wouldn't it be wild if this was a big publicity stunt for the gas company? Listen out of the sound of the turtles on KB, baby. The show continues, including the usual commercials you get on the radio. And then something odd happens. Something you don't hear often. A song gets interrupted. Not once, but twice. And don't you know that it's just you and you reported that a large meteor has smashed in on the ground along the East River Road on Grand Island, setting off a series of fires. Several lives have been lost. KB Total News Director Don Lancer on the way to the scene. Repeating, a large meteor is reported to have smashed in on the ground on Grand Island, killing several people and touching off a series of fires. This has been a KB Total News Bulletin. Full details of KB Total News straight down the line of the half hour. This buildup of news reports goes on for about 25 minutes, and then the program changes to a full news coverage of the event. Now, I'm going to be a little coy here and not talk too much about the events and the rest of this particular version, because part of the War of the Worlds Week includes a live stream of this version I really encourage you to listen to. This production is phenomenal. In a lot of ways, it's hard to believe that it was made in 1968. What's great about this one compared to some that I'm about to cover is that it's original while being recognizable. It's a War of the Worlds story. Now, when I say it's original, I don't just mean the places and names are changed like the others. This one recreates it completely in a modern for the time manner. Here's a better description of what WKBW set out to do in their own words. This played right before the actual broadcast of their War of the Worlds. 
When the show was originally broadcast by the Mercury Theater of the Air, the landing of the Martians was covered by radio with the techniques that were in use at that time. Since then, the techniques have changed. Newsmen and their modern and efficiently equipped vehicles are far more mobile. They're able to cover great distance with radio units the size of a small valise. Communications has improved to a degree that broadcasters in 1938 would not have thought possible. And these are the techniques that we have utilized in preparation of our presentation of the War of the Worlds. The WKBW radio production staff has followed the plot outline and basic script very closely. We approach the story with the feeling of not how can we copy it, but how would it be covered by a modern newsroom in this day and age. And you are about to hear the results. The cast was also unique to this production. It was all on-air personalities that the audience already knew. They were all well-known local celebrities. Joe Downey with the news reports, Sandy Beach as the scheduled on-air DJ, studio anchors Henry Brock and Jefferson Kay, and radio and TV field reporters Jim Fagan, Don Lancer, and Irv Weinstein. None of these performers were actors. They were news personalities, and there's a big difference between the two. The format and how they approached the script had to be reworked, as writer-producer Jeff Kay and director Dan Kriegler explained in this clip. So I rewrote the script to upgrade the language from the late 30s to the late 60s. And uh, in doing so, we found out one very important thing. One, that our newsmen couldn't act. And we were using most of our newsmen in the broadcast. Uh, so we decided to do something else. I changed the locality from a small town in southern New Jersey to Grand Island, New York, and to have some impact on the local area. And then we decided that I would write the script in such a way that the newsmen would be told, here is where you start, this is where you enter the scene, this is what we want to have happen during the time that you're on the air, and this is where I want you to end. That was one of the major uh, advantages, because uh, it was being broadcast as a news coverage of a real event, a fictional event, of course, but being broadcast as if it were real. So that using real newsmen uh, was quite appropriate. Now, if the real newsmen had to read lines, as we attempted to do at the first, uh, it was completely impossible and inappropriate. But when real newsmen were allowed to do real newsmen stuff, make up their own lines, you told them what the story was, uh, the details of the particular scene, and they, we all did, like a bunch of children, just said, let's pretend is it, that it is real, and they reported it as if it was real, and so it sounded that it was real. To avoid any remote possibility of confusion or panic, WKBW advertised this event every hour of the day for 21 days straight. But still, even with all these efforts, some people still fell for it. Not to the degree in Ecuador, and maybe not even to the extent of anything that actually did happen in 1938, but some people still bought it. Now, I've known about this version for a little while now. In fact, there's other versions that follow this from WKBW. But while researching a little more for this special, I found something really interesting on a kind of personal note. And if you're someone that grew up in the same area I did, I think you're going to find this interesting too. Jeff Kay, as I mentioned, was the main producer. He was also the writer and a performer of this production. I'm going to play another piece of Jeff Kay's work that if you're near my age and grew up in my area, you'll know exactly what it is. For everyone else, this will be over in just a few seconds. Action News. Delaware Valley's leading news program with Gary Papa, meteorologist Cecily Tynan, and Jim Gardner. So again, if you're in my age range and you grew up in the Philadelphia area, you recognize that clip. For everyone else, let me explain real quick. That is the introduction to Action News, the daily news broadcast in the Philadelphia market. I have heard this my whole life. That voice you heard, obviously, was Jeff Kay. So what I'm trying to say here is one of my favorite all-time productions of War of the Worlds actually has a little bit close-to-home connection that I never knew enjoying it in all these years. Now, granted, I haven't worked for Action News, nor did I ever know Jeff K., but to me, finding that little tidbit of information in this special was kind of cool. Now let's get back to the story of the WKBW version of War of the Worlds. News for some people falling for this unintended hoax reached Jeff K. I say unintended because, like I just mentioned, they had advertised. They weren't trying to fool anyone. Kay raced into the control room and stopped the recording to announce this was a dramatization. He was met with a little resistance in the form of WKBW War of the Worlds director, Dan Kriegler. 
Again, in their own words, I'll let them explain. The first voice you'll hear is Jeff Kay, followed by Dan Kriegler. I began to answer the phone, and people were hysterical on the telephone. And I became very concerned because this was not what we wanted to do. I went to Kriegler in the control room, and Danny was very busy mixing in these sound effects, and I said to him, Danny, I've got to go on the air, and we've got to do a very, very big disclaimer to take enough time to call people to their senses because some of these people believe what we're doing. Kriegler said, no, <laughs> absolutely not. You cannot go on the air. I won't permit it. No. I said, Danny, we've got to do it. He said, I'll fight you first. And it was going to come down to an actual fist fight for me to get on the air uh, because it was really, the show was driving and it was just building. So I went to the tape rack where the big tape was on the wall and it was turning and was broadcasting out. And Kriegler was over to my other side of the room. And I said to him, Danny, if you don't let me go on the air, I'm gonna rip this tape right out of this machine and run like hell onto Main Street with it. And we'll never finish it. And he said, okay, you can go on the air. So I went on at the next commercial break and I pleaded with people. I said, ladies and gentlemen, this is a play. This is a drama. This is not happening. It's a figment of our imagination. Please, you know, don't believe what you're hearing. It's not happening. Everybody is safe and secure. That was totally useless. It did nothing. It is a case where we were both right. Uh, he was right. It was good. The situation was getting out of hand. And I was right that, yes, uh, it would detract from this carefully scheduled uh, compaction of time to make the war work. Uh, in the event it was unnecessary because uh, in another 10-15 minutes it was perfectly clear that the thing was unreal. Uh, we had uh, people literally come to the control room door in tears, beating on the door uh, in panic over the thing was real. The, the credibility of people who only half hear something is astounding. It's not that, uh, that they're particularly gullible, it's just that they have less information than they need, and people tend to take all broadcast facilities as being quite, uh, quite true. The verisimilitude uh, of, of broadcasting is uh, ingrained amongst the people, and if they get only half the information they need, uh, then they assume that anything they hear is true in total. This 1968 broadcast, like I alluded to, or maybe even outright said at this point, is one of my all-time favorite versions. But it's topped perhaps only by the 1971 WKBW version. In 1971, WKBW did this again. This time, their on-air DJ for the night was Jackson Armstrong. Now, while the scene from where Armstrong cuts to the newsroom until the end of the broadcast plays out exactly the same as the 1968 version, the lead-up and music show segments are restructured and changed up, giving the 1971 version a more methodical, intense buildup, in my opinion. Hands down, now, I will say, this is my favorite audio version of War of the Worlds, and I'm talking about the 1971 WKBW version. WKBW did it again in 1973. Now, this is where the tradition starts to fall apart a little bit. First, the host of that year's music segment was Shane Brother Shane, a.k.a. the Cosmic Cowboy. And while he does a fair job, the bar was set pretty high by both Sandy Beach and Jackson Armstrong. And with that, I don't think the opening segment in this version stands up. The biggest and most obvious change for the 1973 version is that anchor Joe Downey featured in both the 1968 and 1971 versions, is no longer with WKBW. The opening news segments and subsequent news alerts are read by Ron Baskin. Then when the live coverage of the invasion starts, Joe Downey is inexplicably running the newsroom. Things actually got worse when WKBW did this production one more time in 1975. At this point, Jeff Kay had left WKBW and Buffalo for the Philadelphia market, and his lines were very roughly cut from this 1975 edition, making this audio production very choppy and disjointed. Well, like I said now, I think more than one time is that this is my favorite version of the War of the Worlds, particularly the 1971 version, followed extremely closely by the 1968 version. So much so that I will be hosting a live stream of that 1968 version Saturday night, October 29th at 9 p.m. Eastern at newsaz.com slash live. 
Now, you might be asking, why wouldn't I stream the 1971 version when that's my favorite, right? Well, if you've never heard either, I think it's important to hear the original version first. It is phenomenal. I'm not just saying that. I really do mean it. And just to harken back to something I said at the beginning of this show, I will be doing a War of the Worlds week again next year. So I think you can read between the lines now at this point. Now that I told you about my favorite of all time, we're finally at a point in the history of the audio dramas where I hear a version of the War of the Worlds radio drama for the first time. It was 1988. I was 16 at the time. Too old to trick or treat, and it was three years before Halloween Horror Nights would start. I caught a TV news blurb that the local NPR station would be airing a 50th anniversary remake of the original Mercury Theater on the Air version of The War of the Worlds. The news bit I caught was mainly about Steve Allen's involvement in starring in the new production. Steve Allen remembers listening to the broadcast in Chicago when he was just 17. When we heard that they were uh, sighted in the skies over our city, we thought we should get out. That was a pretty irrational response. <laughs> get out where? You know, if we could get out to Cleveland, it might have made some sense, but just to get out in the street made no sense. Nevertheless, that's where we were immediately headed. So even today, it seems that a suspension of disbelief is possible. And perhaps that's still what radio can do best. But all I cared about is that I was finally going to be able to listen to it. And I did. And I recorded it. My obsession for this radio drama is now in full swing at this point of the story. This production was done by Otherworld Media and put together a huge cast of both accomplished actors and NPR personalities. Steve Allen, Douglas Edwards, Scott Simon, Terry Gross, Phil Proctor, Rene Abergenois, and who I think is really the star of this production, Jason Robards. Robards played the Orson Welles role and was featured nearly solely in the second act. The production was led and arranged by Oscar-winning engineer Randy Tom and was recorded at Skywalker Sound. This NPR version, again, is another rewrite. But unlike the WKBW rewrite, this is more of an update to the 1938 adaptation. It's done more to match the current time we're listening to this. This version is by and large a scene-for-scene -scene remake of the 1938 Orson Welles' War of the Worlds framed in a modern setting. The 50th anniversary broadcast painstakingly keeps as much of the 1938 story intact as possible, starting with the music presentation portion of the broadcast. The broadcast starts with a show called Reminiscing in Tempo with Rose Butler. The subject of this session, 1938. Coming up, two hours of vintage music for a Sunday night on Reminiscing in Tempo. I'm Rose Butler, and tonight I'll take you back 50 years to 1938. We were coming out of the Depression then. Business was better, more men were back at work, sales were picking up, and the big bands were thriving. Music from 1938. Stay with us. But before we hear the music, there's a segment called Star Drift. It's an astronomy-themed short. This update talks about and informs stargazers about Mars' closest proximity to Earth in the past 17 years. The short segment ends with a bit of a tale about past beliefs of life on Mars peering down on us and sort of plotting against us. Our probes found no clear signs of life on the red planet, but of course, many people once believed that intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Stardrift is produced at Great Blue Hill Observatory in association with WGBH Boston. For the observatory, I'm Joe Bloke. When Reminiscing in Tempo returns, we start with a 1938 recording of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra, the same band featured in the Orson Welles production. At the end of October 1938, there was a live network radio broadcast from the Meridian Room of the Hotel Biltmore in downtown New York, where Ramon Raquello and his orchestra were playing dance music, and this is how they sounded. We bring you the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Ramon Raquello leads off with Rosita. The music is interrupted by a news report, much like the 1938 broadcast. Oh, I hate to interrupt the music, but we're going to join Public Radio News in Washington for a special news report. Then I'll be back with more music from 1938 on Reminiscing in Tempo. This is your listener-supported station for the information you need and the music you enjoy. I'm Gene Morgan. Two reports of explosions on Mars from astronomers in Princeton and in Chicago. 
Dr. George Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory says... They seem to come at regular intervals. There were several of them. Seem to be explosions of incandescent gas. We have Dr. Richard Pearson of Princeton Observatory with us. Dr. Pearson, you've seen these explosions? Yes. Really? Hydrogen gas moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun. Well, we'll keep track of this story, Dr. Pearson. Thank you. And at this point, not too much has really changed. The scenes are generally the same. Now, the first appearance of Professor Pearson is on phone rather than a local report, but the dialogue is, I think, completely the same as the 1938 version. Sound effects are updated. The reports in the observatory are done in a more modern and realistic, at least realistic for the time, talking 1988 manner. And some other additional news sources are brought in for these news reports. Even with these updates and slight alterations, it's still, like I said, by and large, a remake of the 1938 Mercury Theater on the Air version. As far as the story goes, not much is added or taken away, if anything, to the overall story. When I finally listened to this that night, it was everything I'd hoped it would be, and I freaking loved it. Every minute of it. I played that tape literally to death. The tape did break. I I tried to repair it with scotch tape at one point, but it didn't last long. Like I said, my obsession was at its height and never really died down after this. I don't think if I heard an entire remake or even, in a sense, what we call a reboot now of the story as my first listening to this story, I don't think it would have had the same effect on me as this one did. It was nearly the original script being performed, and it's what I had been waiting to hear for years. Though it wasn't Orson Welles or anyone from the 1930s, it still had the effect I thought it might have on me. Like I said, I just absolutely fell in love with it at this point. Now, with that stage set, the next version to come along in my life actually made me a little mad, which is weird because it's another almost identical remake. Just six years later, the LA Theater Works released their production of War of the Worlds. This was a huge disappointment because I really wanted to love this one as much as I loved the 1988 version. And why? Star Trek. The cast was all Star Trek alumni. Leonard Nimoy, Brent Spiner, Gates McFadden, Will Wheaton, Megan Fay, Jerry Harden, Dwight Schultz, Armin Shimmerman, Tom Virtue, and John Delancey. But like I said, this was a huge disappointment for me. And this is the biggest reason why. This version is an imitation of the original, not a remake. Not only was this production using mostly, if not the exact original script, most of the actors, and again, if not all of them, save for Leonard Nimoy, were doing direct impressions of the original 1938 performers. This production really brought nothing new to this legacy. Now, that might sound hypocritical since I said I love the 1988 near-direct remake. Well, here's the difference. Both used the same script to base their productions off of. After that, the 1988 version performers brought their own performances and interpretations to the role. This one, for the most part, did not. I don't really have anything else to say about this version. I just don't like it. I do want to say that this is my opinion. I'm sure it's a fine listen for a lot of people. But for me, there's many better versions to be found. So now at this point in history, at least for me, we fast forward to 2013 and come up on the 75th anniversary of the original War of the Worlds. This was the closest I got to producing a version of War of the Worlds for Neosaz.com. In 2013, the audio drama production site and podcast, Radio Drama Revival, ran a contest for a new take on War of the Worlds in celebration of this 75th anniversary. The requirements for the story were, the invaders had to arrive by meteor, tripods are used for locomotion, there is massive destruction, and a natural biological solution. There was one technical requirement for this production. It couldn't be longer than 15 minutes. That technical requirement is what kept me from working on the production. But I did follow the contest, and on episode 338 of Radio Drama Revival, the three winners are announced and their productions played. Those winners were The Refertilization of Weed Planet 313, Herbert West vs. the Martians, A Tale of Our Fair City, and Dead London by the Wireless Theater Company. That episode of Radio Drama Revival is still online and easy to find. Just type Radio Drama Revival 338 into Google and that should lead you right to it or check out the link that I will put in the show notes. If this special you're listening to right now piques your interest in War of the Worlds at all, I suggest checking out this episode because those three winners are really, really good. Unfortunately, the original site for this contest is offline now, so you can't hear the other entrants. But like I said, these three winners are still available. 
There is one more audio production I wanted to talk about in this special. Now, this came out before the 1975th anniversary, but it's fairly new to me. It's also not a War of the Worlds production per se, so this is why it's kind of being put in at the end in this chronological history retrospective. Big Finish Audio, the UK-based audio production company that features many licensed audio dramas, produced one of their many Doctor Who recordings in 2002. This featured the Eighth Doctor and was called Invaders from Mars. Now, like I said, while this isn't a remake of the original War of the Worlds radio drama, it does feature the 1938 production quite heavily in the story, as well as Orson Welles, or at least the character of Orson Welles. The Doctor uses the 1938 broadcast to trick his alien adversaries and further enlist Welles to expand upon the broadcast to defeat his foe. I'm not a super huge Doctor Who fan. I like it well enough. I'm just not an uber fan. I did, however, really enjoy this when I heard it earlier this year. And I think if you're a Doctor Who fan or a War of the Worlds enthusiast or both, you'll get a kick out of it, too. So that pretty much leads us to where I'm at right now and why I'm finally doing these War of the Worlds focused specials and what is next. I'm really determined to produce and release a news as version of War of the Worlds in 2017. As far as how it'll be different, the differences are really a matter of the different times these productions are made. The events will still unfold much like they did in the original 1938 version. The difference is this time it happens while a group of podcasters are online live with the entire internet at their disposal. We'll add some aspects in the reporting of the invasion that just weren't possible to do in 1938. And when it comes to the Martian attack, we have plans to create a little more damage than Grover's Mill saw back then. This is without a doubt to me going to be the biggest production we've done at Neozaz to date and the most dramatic, another thing by and large new to us. But I think with the experience we've gained in the productions we've done in the past and the technology available to us now, it's something we can pull off and make a pretty memorable and fun event to listen to. And I think that's a challenge that everyone at Neozaz is ready to take on. So that does it for this special and the start of our first War of the Worlds week. But that doesn't do it for War of the Worlds, not by a long shot. There are movie adaptations, comics, musicals, games, and a ton of other inspired works and interpretations to talk about. This special just focused on one single format of the story, the audio dramas. So to wrap up, I'll talk a little bit about the rest of War of the Worlds Week. We continue War of the Worlds Week as well as our Halloween series podcast of horror, a Simpsons Treehouse of Horror podcast, as we feature The Day the Earth Looks Stupid, the War of the Worlds inspired Treehouse of Horror Simpsons story. Next up, I invite fellow podcasters, good friends, and comic book gurus Scott Gardner, Paul Spatero, and Bill Robinson from the Two True Freaks Network show Back to the Bins to discuss the DC comic Elseworld one-shot, Superman War of the Worlds. I Have Questions will step in next with the question I hinted at earlier in this episode, the question and answer for Did War of the Worlds Really Create Mass Panic? The last two nights will feature two live events. Saturday, October 29th at 9 p.m., the 1968 WKBW remake will be streamed live at neozaz.com slash live. Later that night, we'll post it to our neozaz.com celebrates Halloween feed so you can download and listen to it at your leisure. If you've never heard this version before and you're a fan of the War of the World story, I highly recommend that you tune in or download this one. It is amazing. Then Sunday, October 30th, also at 9 p.m. Eastern and also at newsaz.com slash live, we will stream the original 1938 Mercury Theater on the air production of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Again, if you've never heard this before, I strongly recommend checking it out. Well, that does it for this special, but the week has just begun. So join me again tomorrow and all week for our extended War of the Worlds tribute this Halloween season. We do have a new feed for all our Halloween specials, including every episode of our War of the Worlds week. It is newsaz.com celebrates Halloween. You can find it on iTunes or from our subscription links on our website at newsaz.com. That is it for now. Once again, I am Matt for newsaz.com, and I want to say thank you for listening to the start of the War of the Worlds week, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. <laughs>